0: Grace and peace to you, NBC. This morning we have a guest preacher, um, a good friend and dear brother, Jonathan Prudhomme. Um, We plan to only have a few guest preachers a year, but Jonathan doing so for us this week is a real blessing to us. Joshua and I have been planning to go to a conference called Together for the Gospel for some time, um, for a couple of years actually, and we of course were prevented from doing so due to COVID-19. We were still able to simulcast the conference this week, and so Jonathan preaching for us is a real, real blessing. Jonathan is on staff at Harvest as a church planning resident, and that's where he and I got to know one another pretty well. One of the things I really appreciated about Jonathan is um, he's a really good question asker, both about um, people and then God's Word, and so when I would work in 209, he often would come in there and say, hey, Sarver, you got got time for a two-minute question? You got time for a five-minute question? You got time for a seven-minute question? And um, I'd always say yes. And they always ended up being 30 minutes, 45 minutes, (laughs) 60 minutes. Um, But those are some, honestly some of the big highlights for me of my time at Harvest, just getting to talk with Jonathan about God's Word and about the ministry. Before Jonathan was on staff at Harvest, he was in... Uh, in Italy as a missionary for seven years. And his hope, his desire, his prayer is to be able to go back to Italy to do more mission work. And we would love to partner with him by um, by at least praying for him and encouraging him as he seeks to do so and, Lord willing, ends up back there. So our brother will be preaching to us this morning from Psalm 19. I do trust and pray that it will be a blessing for all of us.
1: Good morning. Thank you, Josh and John, for invited me to be with you guys this morning albeit not physically I do wish I could see you guys because it really isn't the same standing in my living room but I'm thankful nonetheless to get to be with you all in spirit this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 19 together so if you have your Bibles with you go ahead and flip there I'll be reading out of the English standard version and once you get there, uh, I'd like to invite you to stand with me to, uh, for the reading of God's Word. Let's read Psalm 19 together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your help to understand your word, to have our eyes opened by your spirit so that we would not just understand but treasure your word and your son. Father, I pray that you would be opening our eyes to savor the, the riches that we find in your word this morning and to be changing and transforming our hearts into your image. And I pray these, son, these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So we're looking at Psalm 19 this morning. And while the beginning of the psalm can often double as an Instagram caption, <laughs> it actually is so much more than that. It's it's rich in helping us understand big truths about God and his ultimate worth, about ourselves and our insidious perception problem, and about the wonderful solution to that problem. Now, As I was chewing on this text the past couple of weeks, I I couldn't get a a thought out of my mind. And it was was the memory of my Austrian friend um, who said to me years ago, you know, one of the reasons I can't get behind Christianity is that it uses all this language that doesn't have anything to do with real life anymore. Like the word glory. I mean, what does that even mean? And as I thought about it, I realized that In one sense, he he had a point. A lot of times we don't actually know what these words mean. So, since the word glory is right here in verse 1, let's start by defining it. David writes The heavens declare the glory of God. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod, and it means brilliance or weightiness. So right out of the gate in this Psalm, David is saying the weightiness, the importance, the ultimate value and worth of God is being shouted from the skies. And he's saying that we're we're constantly bombarded with it. And David shows us this by illustrating how pervasive this message is. He says, day after day pours pours forth speech and night after night reveals knowledge. There's not one moment of our existence that we're not faced with who God is and with how much he matters. But there's just one problem. David tells us in verse 3 that there is no speech. There are no words. What's he mean by that? Well, he's talking about a, a wordless speech. God's glory that's being declared in the heavens is kind of like cosmic sign language or a smoke signal or a fire lit on top of a mountain that communicates something specific to all who see it. And just as David underscores the pervasiveness of this message about God's glory, he also tells about the the message that the message communicates beauty. So in, in very poetic language, he says, it's like the sun. And he says it's as beautiful as a groom that goes out to meet his bride on his wedding day and and as glorious as a runner bursting through the finish line with a huge grin on his face. So just as the sun is beautiful and glorious and there is nothing hidden from its heat, like he says, so is God's revelation about himself. Again, there's not a moment of our day that we don't come in contact with the reality of how much God matters. He's constantly gushing forth speech about how utterly worthy of our attention, of our time, of our hopes, and of our trust He is. But no matter how constant and pervasive and no matter how beautiful God's communication is with us about His worth, we still don't get it, do we? We don't perceive it, but why don't we perceive it? Why don't we see God for who he is? Why can't we seem to to count or consider him worthy of our time and of our attention? Well, I, I would like to suggest this morning something that we'll actually see with more clarity in just a minute, and it's this. The big reason that we don't perceive God for who he is is actually not that he hasn't been clear like we saw in the first six verses, he's actually been abundantly clear. The big reason that we don't perceive him correctly is that none of us comes to the facts with a blank slate. None of us sees the beautiful world God has made without seeing it through some lens that we've concocted. You see, we see, we as humans have the tendency to create our own narrative. We tend to look at everything around us and we fill in the blanks with something that suits us or with something that matches our experience. And it's never neutral. So we jump to conclusions. We we stuff what God has clearly revealed to us about himself and we reinterpret our circumstances, uh, who we are, and who God is based on what we want them to be. and. We're constantly generating this narrative. And whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we're telling ourselves a story that attributes meaning and value to our, our lives. And this happens across the board. Every single one of us does this. I'll give you an example from a song that was written recently. And as far as I know, these guys don't really have anything to do with Christianity or any kind of religion that I know of. But the words to this song just perfectly match what Psalm 19 is is getting at, the first section of the psalm is getting at. And the first two verses go like this. Why in the night sky are the lights hung? Why is the earth moving around the sun, floating in the vacuum with no purpose, not a one? Why in the night sky are the lights hung? Why is life made only for to end? Why do I do all this waiting then? Why this frightened part of me that's fated to pretend? Why is life made only for to end? Now, I know you all are very encouraged now, but as as sad as this song may sound, what are these guys doing? They're They're asking questions about what they see, and they're drawing conclusions. If you listen to the words he said that everything is floating in a vacuum with no purpose, and that life was made only for to end. But then he's trying to figure out why his emotions or why his gut tells him something different. You see, people have been doing this for for centuries. Another example that is a little more familiar to most of us, I'm sure, is actually the example of three uh, 20th century philosophers that Uh, lay under the stars, and they try to understand what they were and interpret what they meant. And, of course, I'm talking about uh, the philosophers Timon, Simba, and Pumbaa in their magisterial work, The Lion King. (laughs) I'm sure you all know the scene. Uh, They're lying under the stars, and Pumbaa says to Timon, Timon, ever wonder what those sparkly dots are up there? And Timon says, I don't wonder. I know. They're fireflies that got stuck up in that big bluish black thing. And Pumbaa says, Oh, I thought they were big balls of gas burning billions of miles away. And then Timon and Pumbaa turn to Simba and ask him what he thinks. And Simba responds kind of sheepishly. He says, Well, someone once told me that the great kings of the past are up there watching down over us. And what did Timon and Simba and Puma do? course, they laugh at him because they find his worldview ridiculous. You see what's going on here? They're they're interpreting life through a lens. They're drawing conclusions based off of their perception. Even something as commonplace as a Disney movie is proposing different worldviews. Timon sees the world through what he sees around him and kind of in a primitive way he calls it fireflies because that's probably what he's experienced. Or Pumbaa has a much more purely naturalistic view of the world, and it's just simply uh, chance put burning balls of gas up into uh, the empty space. And finally, Simba proposes that all the stars are actually his ancestors. Now, as philosophical as all of this may sound, these different interpretations are all actually very real worldviews that people hold to in our world. Um, and in fact I'm sure if you asked some of your neighbors in Midtown, you'd probably come across even some other worldviews other than these. And even though I'm assuming most of you are list- that who are listening this morning have a robust faith in Christ, We're actually all still in the same predicament as these other worldviews. We're all still very human. We're all still um, have the tendency to draw conclusions. Now, what do I mean by that? What I'm saying is that we're drawing conclusions about God. We're still drawing conclusions about ourselves and about our life. We may not be aware of it, but we are. Every day our hearts and our minds tend to draw up a picture of who God is. Our human tendency is to create a God of our own mind, after our own image and likeness. Now, I know you all as a congregation have a deep desire to know God and His Word. But oftentimes the shift in our perception can be really quite subtle. Almost without realizing it, we draw conclusions about who God is. But how do we know that the conclusions that we're drawing line up with reality? Maybe even a a more pertinent question for our culture today is, who gets to decide at the end of the day whose view of reality is actually the right one? Or maybe even a better question is, is there even a right one? (laughs) That's the question of our day. The next uh, section addresses these questions in reality. And in this next section, we move from how God generally reveals himself to us in nature and in the heavens to a much more specific and intimate disclosure of who he is. In fact, this section is telling us that the only real way we can be sure that we know who God actually is is if he graciously stoops. Down to reveal himself to us in his word, and you can see this not simply just in the sharp uh sudden shift in subject matter, you can also see it in the shift in how David talks about god if you in the first section he he says that the heavens declare the glory of God, Elohim, but in the next uh, several verses, he starts using and repeating the word the Lord. And in your Bible, I'm sure the Lord is in all caps. And usually if the word the Lord is in all caps, it's, it's referring to Yahweh um, in the Old Testament usually. So why does he do this? Well, he's, he's now talking about Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel who revealed himself in very specific ways to them. And most importantly, he revealed himself through his word, through a written record of who he is and how he's acted in history. So the Lord gives us his word, his clear revelation of who he is, so we can also know and trust in what he says he's like. And David shows us this by using lots of different terms for God's word. He uses the words law, testimonies, uh, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, And while all these different terms are nuanced in different ways, they all are essentially showing us God's character through the history of the Old Testament. So, for instance, uh, his law is the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible, that recounts how God created the world, how he called Abraham out of or of the Chaldeans, how he redeemed Israel, his people, out of slavery in Egypt, and his His testimonies, like David mentions, are attested truths of God's character, such as uh, Numbers 23, where he says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. What he has said, that will he do. Then finally, his commandments and his precepts remind us of the Ten Commandments, and what he says is, right and wrong, and his rules, or in other words, his judgments, should remind us of how he's weighed in on matters, how he's called things pleasing or displeasing to him, or what he calls good and evil. And alongside all of these different nuanced terms for his word, David uh, tells us about the benefits of these words, and the benefits of intimately knowing and trusting the God who has revealed himself to us in his word. He says our souls will be revived and we can be made wise. Our hearts will be rejoiced and our eyes will be enlightened. And all of these things can be true for us if we just trust in the Lord's perfect, trustworthy, true, and pure word. But we have a problem. Like we saw before, our human tendency is to draw conclusions we tend to create our own narrative we, we we tend to determine what our life and our circumstances mean out of our own lens and our own perspective rather than trusting in god's narrative and perspective where where do we get this from well if you look back at verses 7 and 9 with me It says that the Word of God revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Does this sound familiar? If you've read the book of Genesis, it probably does because these verses in Psalm 19 actually mimic the deception that happened in the Garden of Eden. You don't have to go there right now, but in Genesis uh, chapter three, verse six, after the serpent had tempted Eve, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So what was the serpent doing here? Well, he was offering them benefits outside of God and his word, that God had already promised them. He was trying to get them to go somewhere else for these benefits, and he was trying to get them to do it on their own terms, independent of God. He was essentially getting them to believe that they could be God of their own lives, that how they saw things was better than how God saw things. And this is exactly what we do. Like Paul said in Romans 1, we exchange the truth for a lie and we res- and we worship the creation rather than the created, the creator. We We look for our souls to be revived. We look for wisdom. We look for eyes to be enlightened by created things on our own terms rather than by God himself. And when we do this, we're essentially declaring something. We're We're declaring that my perception is reality. I ultimately decide who God is for me. I ultimately decide who I am, and no one else has the right to tell me any differently. I believe in my truth, is what we're essentially saying. We either consciously or subconsciously start thinking in these terms, and and one of the things that verses 7 through 11 in this section is telling us in the Psalm is that God is not who we think he is. God is who he says he is. And you see, this isn't just our culture's narrative. We, we create this narrative as well. We buy into this way of thinking all the time. We think God is who we think he is and not who he says he is. We create a God of our own mind. We just aren't aware we're doing it. And that brings us to our next section. If you look at me with, uh, look with me at uh, verses 13 and 14, David says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So, think about David's question here. It's a rhetorical question, and he says, Who can discern his errors? What's he getting at? Well, he's basically asking us, How do you know that you're seeing straight? Or in other words, he's, he's saying, How do you know when you're being deceived? Now, think about it, really, for just a second. How do you know that you're being deceived? Well, the trick is, is that you don't. You can't know that you're being deceived because otherwise you wouldn't be deceived, right? So the answer to David's question, who can discern his errors is certainly not you. Like we saw, we do exactly what our culture does. We, we make ourselves the ultimate judge of truth, of meaning and of reality. And while our culture might do it very blatantly, we do it too. We're just not aware we're doing it. But here's the secret you might not be aware you're doing it, but most likely other people around you are. You see, when we exchange the truth for our own version of reality, we're deceived by our own perception. It actually makes us blind to the fact that we're blind, it makes us unable to discern our errors. The prophet Jeremiah. Was getting at the same thing when he wrote the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it again the answer to the question is certainly not you you see these these hidden faults that david is talking about here aren't necessarily so hidden they can be actually hidden from us precisely because they're so characteristic and glaring and that's how pervasive and insidious this problem is. There was actually an example of this in uh, the late 1800s when a um, an scientist that conducted an experiment, his name was George Stratton, and he was researching optics and how the brain perceives the images that come through our eyes. And because our eyes actually received the image technically upside down, he created a pair of big, goofy glasses that made him see upside down to see what would happen. And to his surprise, after several days of running into things and feeling nauseous, he began to see normally again. His brain had actually adapted to an inverted perception of the world. And that's exactly what sin does to us. It it deceives. It comes in... A little at a time and makes us get used to a false perception of reality. In fact, we get so used to it that we don't even see it as false anymore. It no longer nauseates us. Meanwhile, everyone else around us sure can see it. They see our our big inverted goofy glasses. They see our glaring flaws and the deception that we've bought into. In fact, the whole Bible shows us this is true. The The letter of the Hebrews in chapter 3, the writer says, Exhort or encourage one another uh, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, what this is telling us is that our perception is not reality. We can so easily be hardened, we can so easily be deceived. And precisely for this reason, we need other people. We need community. We need people who can help us see our blind spots. And we need the humility that it takes to admit when we don't see straight. And that we don't always perceive God, ourselves, or other people correctly. So, some questions for us this morning. Who knows you? Do you have anyone in your life that can gently and lovingly tell you when you've gotten things wrong? Do you have anyone in your life that can oppose you or challenge your perception of reality without you pushing them away? I heard someone call these his reality testers one time. He had grown aware that he had the tendency to get things wrong a little bit, and so when he found himself in a a pickle, he called up these three guys and he would say, Am I seeing this right? And oftentimes they'd say, No, that's kinda normal. <laughs> and so the question is, is do we have reality testers? Wise, loving, gracious reality testers in, in our lives that can do that same thing for us. Do we have friends who will lovingly wound us so that we might be healed? So we've seen that God clearly reveals himself and his ultimate worth, first in nature, and then he stoops down to graciously reveal himself in his word. But even with faithful friends and God's word, we still jump to wrong conclusions about God and about ourselves and about other people. So what do we do? How can we ultimately know that we're seeing God correctly? It's not that God's communication to us is lacking somehow. It's not that he hasn't been clear. It's that we don't perceive it correctly. Well, David gives us a hint in verse 14. He says that the Lord is his rock and his redeemer. So how did David know to think of God in those terms? Where does he get that from? Well, being a good Jewish man and and a king, he knew the law pretty well and so that means he probably had read Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 34 it says the rock. Uh 32 sorry, 32 verse 4 it says the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a god of faithfulness and without iniquity just and upright is he. And when he when he thought about the covenant God Yahweh he was certainly thinking about Israel's redemption and that God was their redeemer, that he had redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So he calls God his rock and his redeemer. And David does not only know and relish God's word, he has a personal experience with who God is, the real God who has made himself known in scripture. He is—he has an intimate relationship with Yahweh, enough to call him my rock and my redeemer. So How does he get there? How does he get past all his wrong perceptions and conclusions about God and come to an actual understanding of who God is? Well, David is intimately tuned into the character of God. He's tuned into the fact that this Yahweh God is perfectly holy and righteous, and yet that he's still gracious and that he still saves, he redeems. And what David is actually doing here is he's pointing to the true rock, the true redeemer, Jesus. He's pointing forward to Jesus. You see, we we desperately needed Jesus because, as John tells us, Jesus is the word of God incarnate. Or like Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Precisely because even with God's written word, we still weren't getting it. God sent his own son, the most perfect revelation of himself, God's ultimate self-disclosure so that we could perceive him correctly, so that we could know him intimately. We needed God in flesh and bone. We needed God who could understand our grief, our sorrow, our temptation, and, and who would never get it wrong. We needed God in the flesh who sees reality for what it is, who would never be deceived by sin, who knew the depths of our depravity, who knew how destructive we are to ourselves and others because of how we claim that our perception is our reality, but who would redeem us from our slavery to ourselves, from our slavery to our own blindness. He would save us, our own self-destruction by willingly being destroyed in our place. But he wouldn't just stop there. He wouldn't just save us from our self-destruction. He would actually do what David says in the psalm. Because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on Good Friday and Easter, God can actually declare us innocent. Like David says in verse 12 and because of Jesus's finished work on the cross in his resurrection he actually does make us acceptable in God's sight like David says in verse 14 because Jesus the Word of God incarnate was perfect right pure clean true and righteous like verses 7 and 9 tell us he can actually make us Perfect, right, pure, clean, and righteous in God's sight when we stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in Christ alone. I can't think of any better words than what we find in verse 10 to describe this fact. This gospel truth, this redemption is sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, As good as that is, I don't know about you, but I don't always see that objective fact as subjectively beautiful. I don't always taste the sweetness of the honey, as it were. So by way of application, I want to commend to you this morning not only God's Word, both in Scripture and in the person of Jesus, but i also like to commend to you a way to savor these deep truths in a deeper way and i found that what i'm about to talk about is is actually yields two really really good results uh the first one is it it helps you experience the feeling of being declared innocent it brings a this big theological fact down into your heart into your affections and it helps you experience the feeling of being found acceptable in god's sight it brings those big gospel truths to bear on all of our actual day-to-day struggles to try to prove ourselves or to try to impress others or to essentially be found acceptable. And two, it actually gilds your mind and heart from falling prey to the false perceptions and faulty conclusions we're so apt to draw in our day-to-day life. So what I would like to commend to you this morning is meditation on God's word. David mentions this in in verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So I want to ask you this morning, what has the meditation of your heart been lately? I'm talking about your most visceral unfiltered thoughts and preoccupations, what have those been lately? Are they, wow, I am so thankful that I'm acceptable in God's sight because of what Christ has done? Or do they go a little bit more like this? Man, I wish I could just be more successful like him. I wish I had all these businesses that he has. Then I maybe I would be worth something finally. Or... I wish guys would notice me more. Maybe then I would be finally beautiful in someone's eyes. Or maybe a little bit more pertinent to our current uh, COVID uh, epidemic, pandemic, excuse me. Maybe your heart is saying something like, I really hope I don't lose my job right now. What will I do if I can't pay my mortgage? What will I amount to if I can't even provide for my family? Now, if you fall into the second category, you're in good company. And as real as those thoughts may feel, how do we wrangle our hearts from the second category to the first? How do we keep them from becoming the lens through which we see reality, especially in the midst of this current COVID crisis? How do we practically get grounded on our rock and our redeemer? Well, Like I said before, we meditate on God's Word, and I really can't put it any better than Charles Spurgeon puts it in his devotion, Morning and Evening, and I believe this comes from the uh, morning portion of the October 12th reading, and he says, There are times when solitude is better than society, and silence is wiser than speech. We should be better Christians if we were more alone, waiting upon God and gathering through meditation on His words, spiritual strength for labor in His service. We ought to muse upon the things of God because we thus get the real nutriment out of them. Truth is something like the cluster of the vine. If we would have wine from it, we must bruise it. We must press, we must squeeze it many times. The bruiser's feet must come down joyfully upon the bunches, or else the juice will not flow. And they must well tread the grapes, or else much of the precious liquid will be wasted. So we must, by meditation, tread the clusters of truth, if we would get the wine of consolation therefrom. So I commend to you this morning God's word in the midst of social isolation, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of confusion and fear of the future, in the midst of temptation to allow all of those emotions to become your reality, I commend to you meditation on these truths until the grapes yield their juice and until the honey of God's word tastes sweet. When you feel that that gnawing feeling of anxiety come back yet again, run to these gospel truths, seek refuge in them. When your heart tells you that God has abandoned you and that he couldn't possibly love you, tread the grapes of God's word, press and squeeze them many times. And when you just don't feel these things to be true, and you feel like all the thoughts that assail you are so much truer, cry out to your rock and your redeemer and pray Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine. Word of God and inward light, wake my spirit, clear my sight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for stooping graciously down to our level so that we can understand your word. And thank you even more that you stooped to become a servant that you became obedient unto death and even death on a cross that you rescued us from our own self-destruction by willingly being destroyed in our place and for finding us acceptable in God's sight by your sacrifice and by your blood Jesus thank you so much for speaking us speaking to us even today Thank you for the privilege it is to meditate on your word. And I pray that your word would seep down into our hearts such that we do get the wine of consolation from it. And I pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.